Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with a true expert on many of the topics we've explored during our series on Who Am I, including borderline personality disorder, sociopathy, and narcissism, Dr. Ramani Durvasala. Dr. Ramani is a licensed clinical psychologist, author, and expert on the impact of toxic narcissism. She is a professor of psychology at Cal State University, Los Angeles, and also a visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg. She's been featured on and even hosted programming on Bravo, the Lifetime Network, National Geographic, the History Channel, and Oxygen. And she's also been a featured commentator on nearly every major television network, as well as radio, print, and internet media. She's the author of Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist and You Are Why You Eat, Change Your Food Attitude, Change Your Life. Her new book, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility will be coming out in September. Dr. Ramani, it's great to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much. It's, it's such a pleasure to be on today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, really looking forward to speaking with you to give a kind of appropriate shout out here. I first encountered your work as a more uh, public personality through the series of videos that you did, I believe, with Med Circle, which were really high quality. Uh, they were very beautifully done. So I would totally recommend them to anyone who's interested in these topics and interested in getting some more information on them. Before we get started with our episode today, I'd like to make a little request. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, leave a rating on a place like iTunes, and maybe even leave a positive review. It really does help us out, and it's one of the best ways that you can support the podcast. So that said, getting into the meat of our episode today, to kind of start us off and maybe introduce you a bit more to our audience, where did your interest in this specific territory of narcissism spectrum uh, disorders come from? You know, as with all psychologists, it sort of came on you gradually. And it came from two main places. One was my research. I was conducting research on HIV. And it was actually a research assistant who got very exasperated at how some of the individuals who came into the clinic were treating the staff. And as he described it, it dawned on me, he was talking about personality disorders and there was no research in the field. So I applied for funding from the National Institutes of Health and then ended up getting 10 years of funding to explore these issues specifically relevant to health. At the same time in my clinical practice, I was seeing individual after individual come into my practice and almost tell the same story over and over again, but they couldn't be more different people. But it was a story of a marriage, of an intimate relationship, sometimes even a parental relationship characterized by invalidation, dehumanization. They felt completely unheard. They felt completely discarded. And I thought, you know, it was one of those strange things like this keeps happening. And I'd literally be writing each individual client an email sometimes at the end of session. So they'd have a takeaway. And I realized like all these emails were the same. I might as well write a book. And then the <laughs> third thing was the, the world changed. Yeah. You know, it started, and I think a lot of this was social media. It was technology. I was struck by how much uncivil discourse there was. It was, I was thinking, did everyone's frontal lobes drop out of their heads at the same time? Or am I missing something? But there was this cruelty that seemed to cut across the world. People were being cruel to the, the supermarket, supermarket checkout person. They were fighting over parking spots. You couldn't put your social media feed on without someone saying something cruel to someone else, sometimes about the most inconsequential things. And I think it was those three trajectories that then led me to really do the deep dive and look into this. And I thought, wow, nobody's talking about this. And I'll be frank with you. I actually think the field of mental health has sometimes been remiss 
in its unwillingness to take these topics on because I think that every therapist, every psychologist out there has a real obligation to the public interest. When we know something, I feel an obligation to share it with the public. And I actually think the field of mental health has not done a good job sharing this kind of information in theory with the public. So I sort of made it my personal calling and here we find ourselves. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a great background. So to kind of jump into some of the material, what distinguishes somebody who has true NPD from somebody who simply displays some vaguely narcissistic behaviors, they're kind of a pain in the butt to be around or other things like that? You know, as people in the field, psychiatrists like Alan Francis and others caution us, you shouldn't diagnose someone just for being a jerk. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it gets tricky. Issue number two is by and large, when we diagnose someone, we look at their personal, their subjective sense of discomfort, of distress and impairment, frankly. Easy example of that is depression, right? A person who's depressed, they, they're sad, they can't get out of bed, they can't concentrate, their appetite changes, their sleep changes, they feel worthless. They're not comfortable. And that discomfort is often what gets them into seeking help or their family wanting to seek them help. What we don't have a model for in mental health is people who make other people uncomfortable through their conduct. We don't diagnose that. The distress has to be in the person. Mm. So the reason narcissistic personality disorder is quite rare and narcissism relatively speaking, is a bit more common, is that because the traits, the patterns in narcissistic personality disorder are actually something that don't really make the person uncomfortable per se, they're quite grandiose and they're quite content with how they go through the world and they're often quite successful and narcissists make higher salaries and they tend to get the girl or the guy. Like Life often kind of goes the way they want. They don't think there's anything wrong. And when called out on their behavior, they tend to blame other people. So there's not even this like, "Mm, the things I'm doing aren't very nice. Mm -hmm. They're saying, oh, that's her fault. That's his fault. That's the world's fault. That's because I didn't get a fair shake. But when we get to the core of narcissism, in fact, it really is a pattern that circles around insecurity. People who are narcissistic are deeply insecure, something that a lot of people miss. They think, oh, they're so confident. They're actually not. That's why they're always lashing out because anything that sort of threatens that fragile ego gets lashed out against. The only example I can give is imagine a really raw scab on your hand and someone went to touch it, you'd flinch and you'd pull the hand away. That pulling the hand away might even feel like a very sudden gesture, maybe even abrupt. That's sort of what the narcissist is always doing with their psyche. It's so fragile. They're always protecting it and all their abruptness and their meanness is often to protect that fragile self, the grandiosity, all of it. But very rarely do they feel so uncomfortable that we view them as impaired. That's why the prevalence of narcissistic personality disorder is only about 2 to 4%. But good Lord, if you're asking me to you know, spitball how many narcissists are out there, I think that number is hovering awfully close to 50%. It's starting to feel like a coin flip. Mm. I wonder if I could ask you a question in two parts. Mm-hmm. First part is about the experience of someone who's living with, sleeping with, being raised by, working for someone with a genuine narcissistic personality disorder. And one of the things that struck me in the way that you've talked about this and certainly supported by the literature is the relatively flat learning curve of someone with a genuine narcissistic personality disorder. Because as you say, in part, they're highly motivated to keep doing it. Okay. So let's suppose that they are that way and you work for them, you sleep with them, you live with them, you're bossed by them, something like that. What's it like to be on the receiving end experientially day in and day out of someone who is so thoroughly narcissistic? So the words that come to mind are invalidating, confused, drained, 
dehumanized. And the only example I can give is anytime any of us sidle up to a mirror, we expect to see our smiling face back at us. In a healthy human relationship, mirroring means that I'm looking at someone and I'm smiling and they smile back. To be in the presence consistently, especially of a significant relationship, a parent or a partner who's narcissistic, is to live in a house of mirrors where you never get to see your own face back. So it's very, very destabilizing because you, no matter what you do, it doesn't seem like you can get this person to consistently respond to you. So whether a child or adult, the main word, the two big words that come back to me are invalidated and confused because in most human relationships, we expect a give and take. I tell you something, you smile or you're sad or you look concerned because you're having an empathic emotional reaction to what I said. Imagine the child who tells their mother a very sad story and the mother said, huh, what did you just say? And the child feels completely unheard. Now imagine that for 15 years. So let's suppose then that you're in a relationship or job or extended family system with someone who's clinically narcissistic in the extreme form, five-ish percent of the population. And I also want to call out one of your findings. It's also supported in the literature that this is more common in men than in women. Yes, it is. Yeah. And probably also I was struck by a comment you made in certain kinds of professions, maybe community organizers, it's relatively low prevalence, Hollywood, titans of industry, right? Maybe higher. Okay. So let's suppose there you are, you're stuck with this person. You're really not able to leave. Maybe you've just got to deal with the situation. Do you have any advice in that kind of situation? Number one, don't try to tango with them. And by that, I mean, they do not make good dance partners, so don't. And so I really start simple with people and I say, don't engage. This person is in your world and likely requests will be made and there'll be some expectations around you. Fulfill only those. I think it's almost as though the person who touches the hot stove, at that, we're pretty good. We touch the hot stove once, we get burned, we don't do it again. Somehow that doesn't work with the narcissist in our world. We keep going in and in and in and thinking as though it's gonna be different this time. The beauty of them is the lack of learning curve in some ways is that they're very consistent. They're they're typically going to be invalidating. But what is confusing is the word typically. If they're having a good day and you happen to catch them on that good day, they are literally the most charming person in the world. So it can be easy to get caught in that. So the trick then becomes, and the main, the number one way to manage any narcissist in your life that you can't get away from a job or family or something like that is to maintain realistic expectations. The way so many people get hurt in these relationships is that their expectations get dashed, but their expectations weren't realistic. This person more often than not is going to invalidate you. They are going to forget. They're not going to listen. They are going to interrupt and they may even undermine, criticize, harass, or insult you. Knowing that, then why why would you engage with them? You know that's coming. So when that happens, you won't be surprised. It may still hurt, But I'm a big believer that being surprised and startled really expends a fair amount of psychological bandwidth. But if we know it's coming, for example, when I go to the DMV, I expect to wait in line. I bring a book, I bring something to drink, and I'm I'm not surprised. But if I went in there in a rush, I would be very upset. It would agitate me. It would be uncomfortable for me. That's a big one. And the other piece I tell people is don't defend yourself in their presence because narcissists are so prone to projection making their stuff your stuff, blaming other people. If you defend yourself, you're often defending yourself against something you probably didn't do in the first place. And they're looking for that argument. So don't get into it. So if, it, if that happens, if they say something to you accusatory, just step away. 
And finally, I really do talk to people about something I call radical acceptance. This is it. You know, life doesn't always turn out the way we want. And so much of life and what makes it, what can make it healthier for us is that when it doesn't turn out the way we want, there is some acceptance. I mean, sometimes things happen. People get sick. We lose people we love earlier than we want. And we can be angry at the world, but we can also go to this place of acceptance and integrate it into our story. And what that means then is the realistic expectations. And so I, the example I've always given everyone, if you're in Chicago and it's February, are you going to wear a tank top outside? The answer to that is no. Why? Because it's February in Chicago and you know it's cold. So you put on a coat. If you can do that, you can do this. Same thing with a narcissist. It's February in Chicago, pull on a coat. That makes good sense to me. And thank you for that, doctor. I think that's really consistent and solid advice. So we've been alluding so far to true narcissistic personality disorder. As we said here, kind of 5%-ish of the population. For anyone who happens to be interested, there are pretty wide estimates on how common NPD actually is, partially because of what you described earlier, the trickiness with diagnosing it. And then you said earlier that as many as, who knows, 30%, 40%, 50% of the population shrug in that direction, I don't know what the number is, could have some kind of trait that represents as quote unquote narcissism. So this implies that there is a spectrum of traits that a person could have that might lean them more or less in that direction. The way that we've talked about it on the show in general was the idea of quote unquote 10% narcissism. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go around diagnosing people as you were saying earlier, but sometimes it can be helpful in your important relationships with people to think about them in terms of, well, this person is kind of 10% in that direction or 15% Mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. direction or whatever it might be. So let's say that you are in a meaningful relationship with somebody who does have a little bit of a learning curve, or they have some of those traits, but not the full package. What are some of the things that you've seen that are useful in making those relationships as fulfilling and functional as possible? You know, when you're dealing with somebody who may not have narcissistic personality disorder, but they might be on the spectrum of narcissism. I think that what you want to pay attention to is some of these traits hurt more than others. For example, the lack of empathy can really hurt, right? Because that yeah. person's not being self-reflective. They're not reflecting what you might be going through or how their behavior is affecting you. And so those kinds of traits in a close relationship are going to have perhaps more impact than somebody who's very superficial and vain. That might seem laughable. It might seem ridiculous. But if they want to keep you know, making themselves up and taking pictures of themselves, that may not be as interpersonally taxing. So part of it has to do with what is being presented in the Mm. person. Not everybody who likes to take pictures of themselves is narcissistic. Sometimes they're insecure. Sometimes they're just playful. You know, if that person who likes to take those pictures is also quite empathic, then they're not, Mm -hmm. I I would be loath to call them narcissistic. So if we get to that core issue of somebody who's not very empathic and you're in a relationship with them, Frankly, the same rules apply. This really is about maintaining realistic expectations. And I would add to that, knowing your own vulnerabilities. We all bring our vulnerabilities into relationships. And there are things that happen if people tread there with us, we're more sensitized, we're more easily hurt, we're more easily affected. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think vulnerability is a great thing. And I think it's so important that people be self-possessed of that not as a problem, but as a strength. I know this about myself. I was hurt in this way as a child or something. So when you know that and you're with somebody and they're treading there, then you can very sort of mindfully be aware of that. This might be a place to gracefully exit rather than getting yourself to a place where you feel so agitated and may regret your behavior. That's often the cycle I see people fall into with narcissistic individuals. 
I can think of three kinds of ways that someone might have some of the apparent traits of narcissism while also being trainable (laughs) in some sense. So I want to float my categories by you and see what you think about that. So first category is someone who feels really insecure inside, very vulnerable to devaluation. And so they're endlessly pulling for, as you know, the term, narcissistic supplies of various kinds to kind of fill that gaping hole in their heart. That's one kind of situation. Another kind of situation is someone who's just simply really poor at empathy for whatever reason. Perhaps they're really internal in their nature. Perhaps they're very alarmed by their own interior and therefore alarmed by the interior of other people, maybe because they have a trauma history, whatever that is. Maybe they're 10% of 10% of 10% of Asperger's syndrome. Who knows what? Maybe there's a culture that they're just, empathy was not anything they particularly learned or capable of it, but they've just, that's not their strong suit. And then I think of a a third category that you alluded to, acquired narcissism in a sense, which I think is really interesting. The narcissism of entitlement and privilege and the expectation of that, including socially reinforced and all the rest of that. Those strike me as different reasons why people can present and therefore different pathways potentially for for healing and and for seeing what is possible when you're in a relationship with someone like that. So I wondered if you could speak to that. I think, I mean, Rick, you you raise an amazingly important, so important, such an important point because it is different and those backstories do have impact. I still think that the management of expectation matters because your experience of it may still be rather similar One thing I do tell folks, especially with that first group you were talking about, the people who are insecure and are chronically seeking supply, to which I sometimes say, give them a little supply. In essence, it's almost like when someone comes into your home, you put them at ease saying, can I get you anything? It's You wouldn't do that for somebody you know, like I wouldn't do that for my kids, but I would definitely for a new visitor to my home, can I take your coat? Can I bring you something? So the giving of supply can put them at ease. The challenge is, that even no matter how much supply you give, they're very rarely going to reciprocate. And that lack of reciprocation is challenging for people. That's that lack of a mirror. That's where the expectations come into play. To which I say, you know what? If, you're gonna, if this person's going to stay in your life, they do need some supply. They need more than you. It's almost like someone who has a bigger appetite mm-hmm. than you. But if it feels like it's, more, it's imbalanced, you may need to be, engage in self-compassion and get some of that need met, met elsewhere. The people who are, who are, as you say, might have these, these more poorly developed interiors due to things like trauma or culture, I think that's a really interesting group. And with that group, I think there's the possibility of what I call empathic acculturation. And by that, I mean you model it. Now, what's hard is with you're pouring all this empathy in and it's to somebody who may not be a big receptacle of it, but to which I tell my clients, empathy is not, not going to run out. And the giving of compassion in a thoughtful, mindful way is actually very good for you. And them seeing you do it may demystify it a little. The challenge there is some clients get frustrated. I've been doing this for 30 years. Then you almost have to change the paradigm that in fact, yes, you are probably showing more. They don't have a vocabulary for it. Like if I tried to speak Spanish, I could probably order water, but it would be very labor. <laughs> I might get up to cerveza myself. Or... Yeah, it may be. <laughs> Maybe. And it won't be cold beer by the time I'm done. But the fact is, though, it's labored for me. And some people speak empathy with an accent, and it's very labored. 
And so it doesn't come automatically. So the conversation is stilted, as it were, when it comes to empathy. Your third group of the acquired narcissists, this is a group, when you live in LA, I mean, again, it's the mothership well, I grew up of there. <laughs> you know, and it's, trust me, it's gotten worse. So I, I've run into these people a lot. And what's interesting about them is, I suppose if, I, so I ponder this, I say this to my students all the time. If tomorrow somebody gave me a car, drove me around, cleaned my house, made my meals, everything ran on time, I could see how I might expect that all the time. And when it wasn't achieved, I may be very quick and clipped and difficult. That kind of narcissism, that acquired narcissism, I think some of that can be shaped through modeling, them seeing people behaving appropriately. And if indeed they don't have the core deficits of narcissism, they may actually respond to feedback saying, I get it. I I know where you've come from. It's actually not like that here. It doesn't have to be accusatory. It doesn't have to be cruel and it doesn't have to be critical. But again, it is really about teaching them about how you might run things and it may be different. And many people who are acquired narcissists will sometimes become quite ashen and say, oh, I'm so embarrassed. You know, I should have known better or this is how I grew up. And I've worked with clients who come from tremendous privilege. And some of our work is simply making them aware of that privilege. And then they do, they catch themselves. But a lot of this is mindfulness. It's teaching the narcissist to stop and think. And I always say, it's like you're going to be in a movie where the voice and the lips don't match. Like what, but you're a little slow in this game. So by the time you hesitate, pause and think of the kinder gesture, there's going to be an artificial delay, but better that than a cruel one. And so even when I've worked with narcissistic clients, it's really what I call the artificial pause. And that's caused some help. Here's the dark side of that. Many people listening to this who have endured narcissists might say, oh, really? So I'm supposed to do all this and make it nice for them. And they're always going to be cold and rejecting. They're never going to get there. I really do also, I I hear them. I definitely hear that. And that's where the expectations come to play. That much like when I had infants, I did not expect them to fetch me tea. I did not expect them to have a conversation. They were my babies. And that my job was to bring them up. But no more than when you have an expectation of a baby. Sometimes it's the same thing here. That makes it a little bit more compassionate than this person's literally out to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing that, just to finish here, that was fantastic. And what stands out for me is whether there's a repair process in a relationship. And my own view is that uh, the world asks a lot of us and it's okay to ask things of others. And then you see what happens. And I think that, it can be really revelatory sometimes to explain to someone who's in one of these three categories who is potentially trainable. When the request is clearly defined, when it's communicated with a sense of gravity and dignity, and there's some clarity behind it, then you've given them a fair chance to repair. Yes, I agree. And then you see what happens. And then maybe they don't repair. So then you raise the topic and then you see how they handle the process of repair. And for me, uh, if there's no repair, that's like a yellow flag. If there's no repair of the lack of repair, that's a red flag right there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, I think you raise the most important issue is that I always say go in there with appropriate communication, empathy, and awareness and attempt to communicate this. However, that after that second or third breach, yellow becomes red. That's when I tell people, you, your job is not to be a punching bag or you, your job is really then self-preservation is a right. So I agree that so much of that, that idea of repair is part of what we do in therapy. It's certainly part of our interactions. And I think, but it's also to understand when to say quit 
and then maybe pull back a little bit because I think when the point I receive clients, they have been so pummeled by these relationships and they've tried repairing it. So I mean that the whole thing looks like it's held together with duct tape at this point. That's obviously too far. But on the front end, especially for example, in a place like work, clarity helps. And look at their reaction. If it is very contemptuous, if it is very demeaning to you even trying to have that communication, to me, that's a red flag too. How was your attempt at repair even received? That's that's important to know. Yeah, I think of the power metaphorically, who knows literally the night of the Buddha's awakening where he recognized uh, evil coming at him in the form of clouds of delusion. And all he did was say, I see you. I recognize yes. you. Just the potency yes. of that. When when it is time to recognize that if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, eats like a duck, da da, it is a duck. I think that the challenge is how many times we are given the lesson from our childhood teachings, from our spiritual teachings, turn the other cheek, keep trying. And I think that it is really to teach people because I think people think it's all or nothing. If this is what it is and they're not going to change it, that I have to leave, which in many cultures or under many conditions isn't possible but that they can stay, but they can stay from a compassionate state. But compassion doesn't mean, again, being a punching bag. Compassion means understanding the limitations and still being respectful in your interactions, even if the other person isn't. I've often likened narcissism to an infectious disease. The more you're in the presence of it, the more you sometimes become at risk of going down the rabbit hole, becoming less empathic, becoming more clipped, often because you're frustrated and exhausted. And that's the process I'd like to stop people from, especially if they can't leave these yeah. relationships. Compassion with your eyes wide open. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point and it's a great conversation. There's some great distinctions being made here. I want to return to something that you mentioned just a second ago, doctor, because I think that it's a, a great phrase, speaking empathy with an accent. I think that was a really beautiful way to put it. And I think that it's a good way to frame a lot of these issues that people encounter inside of these troubling relationships. Like what are the things that a certain person speaks with an accent? And Mm -hmm. what can Mm -hmm. we do to better relate to those people much in the same way that we would relate to somebody in trying to understand them verbally if they did happen to have an actual accent that we found challenging. So I just think it's a really, really good framing. To speak to the kind of third group that Rick indicated, people who have that sort of learned experience of narcissism, I want to kind of wander in that direction for a second because what's interesting about the first two is that they seem kind of purely developmental or cultural in nature. Yes, I agree. And that third group is kind of more acquired to use maybe a slightly tricky word from a psychological perspective. It's more, it loads more heavily on things like social, socially constructed forms of privilege. Yeah, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Exactly. And you were describing earlier, you know, LA, hotbed for this, social media, hotbed for this, so on and so on. It implies that there are certain circumstances in which these characteristics tend to grow, kind of like a Petri dish, if you will. Yes. So what I'm interested in is if somebody is uh, encountering a lot of this material and has people in their lives that they feel are starting to wander in this direction, but they don't want to exit these circumstances for one reason or another. They use social media. They're on Facebook. What can we do as people to kind of better shield ourselves from acquiring these traits ourselves? And uh, for two, to kind of help our friends, coworkers, whatever it might be, manage the kind of early stages of these traits more effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think these are important points because we do live in this world and it is very naive to assert that everyone wholesale is going to put down social media, put down their phones, stop reading internet news boards. We're not. I would actually say that the place to begin all of this is actually self-compassion. And there's a difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. 
We are very much living in the cult of self-esteem right now. And self-esteem is measured often by the other. How do I compare to? How do I compare to other psychologists? How does a college student uh, compare to their peers? How does a person compare to other women in terms of her waist size? How does a man compare in terms of his salary? Whether these are stereotypical or not, these are the places we go. And our self-esteem can go up and down in that place. Self-compassion is a very different place. It really is. It has nothing to do with others. It's a, a self-valuation, a self-love that's, in, it's, that's interiorized. You know, that, and that, that right there becomes an important place because if you can look at your social media feed from a place of self-compassion, it's no longer you getting, oh, how did she get that new car already? It's, what a beautiful new car. I'm happy. For, my friend is happy and, and, I'm, and I'm happy. But that requires you to get to that place of I'm good. And that means doing higher order work on things like authenticity, knowing what you're about. We're not teaching this. I honestly sometimes think we should give up the whole unit on multiplication and state capitals and give it over to authenticity development because <laughs> this is what will end up carrying people into, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. And when you can view all of this from that space, you can view it as entertainment. You can view it with a critical eye. In my new book, Don't You Know Who I Am? You know, in sort of theoretically breaking some of this down, one of the big contributors to sort of this wholesale insecurity that fosters narcissism, honestly, is the economy. We don't spend money unless we're insecure. I really only need two skirts, two pairs of shoes, a couple of shirts. Anything more is extra. And it's because I think I need it. And so that need that is fostered by insecurity is very, very unsettling. But if I really did have that state of self-compassion, I got a day with my kids or a day taking being outdoors, that has a value. So if we can really work with people to be critical thinkers on what these feeds are trying to do, which are often quite manipulative, we become skilled consumers of them. And no more than I think that if I watch a movie that they're trying to convince me to go to Mars just because the movie is set on Mars. It's a movie about Mars and I enjoy it because it's a fantasy. We need to view social media feeds in the same fantastical realm and see it. It's entertainment. It happens to be entertainment that features our friends. But this is critical thinking and this has to start young because I'm struggling with this in my own college students. I teach a media literacy class and they were shocked by the end of the semester at how often they were being manipulated because that's what the whole course was, is how to use psychology to manipulate people through the media. And they said, I'll never be able to look at media the same way again. If we could do that in one semester, I think we can do that for a lot of people. So I don't think that all these things have to be our demise. We just need to be able to look at them in a healthier manner from a place of self-compassion, from a place of critical thinking not use them as a measure of ourselves and really, really push back on this, what feels like an epidemic of insecurity. I wonder if I could just sort of raise a perspective here. And so like you, I've been really haunted by these developments, including the ways in which you can see that they're actually corrupting and undermining democracy altogether. Yes. And I increasingly am looking at our society through the lens of hunter-gatherer bands of roughly 50 people living together their entire lives, which is, as you know, the fundamental crucible of the evolution of humans and our hominid and primate ancestors. And so these tendencies or capacities for gossip, envy, vengeance, cruelty, narcissism, aggression, grievance, and so forth that we see writ so large these days 
we're regulated by the actual conditions of living together day in and day out with 50 people. Yes. And I think about my own experiences doing that kind of thing where you're just with the same people mm. day in and day out, or you've got to look them in the eye and you're related to each other. It has struck me that there are these three fundamental conditions objectively present that are no longer present since agriculture came in and herding and, and the accumulation of surpluses and thus wealth inequality and power inequality and so forth. Conditions of common truth, common welfare, common justice. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, That's not right. a perfectly level playing field in a Stone Age band, still relatively constrained. And that seems to me to me the problem these days, particularly with social media, we're constrained. We don't have to face the people we crapped on the next day in high school or in the village or the town square or in our hunter-gatherer band. We can just, uh, it's like freeloaders. We can, uh, social freeloaders in a sense, we can dump our crap in the public square and there's no cost. Yeah, so that strikes me as, you know, half of a good idea, you know, diagnosing a key feature of the problem. I don't have a cure. I wonder what you think about this. I think it's an excellent point. It's something I've actually lectured about, which is this idea that human beings are a tribal species and our central nervous systems are wired for collectivism. In fact, a group of human beings, their brains all together, it's like the cloud. So if, if you know, and, and that's why somebody remembers what you guys had for dinner last week and yet someone else remembers where the hammer is because no one person can hold all of that. The challenge has become though, this has been a steady drumbeat really since industrialization because the tribe got broken up. So we moved out of our bands of 50 to 100 people and we started moving to cities. And so, and then we were no longer with the tribe. And I think as you, as you know, the research on empathy is very interesting. Our brain is wired for empathy, but it's a bit slower when the object to receive our empathy is different than us, different in appearance and... Of them to our us. Yes, exactly. Of them to our us. So there's a lot of othering right now. And, I, and all these isms that seem to be coming up, you said really cutting to the core of democracy and an equal society are starting to erode because the world, it's stunning for how all of us are starting to live in proximity to, to people who are different than them. But it's as though our brains haven't really kind of caught up on this one, that someone's different and that empathy comes slower. They're perceived as a threat they're not in my tribe. I don't know. They don't know where my hammer is. So they don't even bring anything to the, to the table. But to me, this big cerebral cortex of ours can be taught how to be with people who are different than us and cooperative. It's interesting. We're great at that till kids are about in fifth or sixth grade. And then it starts to become something a bit more Darwinian and zero-sum game. I agree with you. So the question becomes, how do we create tribes again? And in the sense, in a healthy way, not closed off, but with fluid boundaries. Are those neighbors? Are those spiritual communities? Are those coworkers? You know, the challenge is it's, it, we have different skin in the game then. You know, it's not that day in and day out, I'm counting on you. But how do we almost create that sense? Because we are, we're counting on each other for empathy, for warmth, for compassion, for respect, for mutuality, for sometimes for a true north. But I, there's no going backwards on this one. It's happened. And I think you raise an amazingly important point. It's something that has come up in, in my writing. And it's also something when we look at the epidemic of global narcissism. This, this trait has different meanings in different cultures, but if somebody from one culture is doing business with someone in another, that's going to matter. And they're not from the same tribe. So it's, it, that also escalates pretty quickly. So I think that these are important conversations. Yeah, what struck me is that in Paleolithic bands, let's say, uh, or small villages in modern times, like my dad grew up on a ranch in North Dakota in the Badlands, southwestern North Dakota. 
And he lived in a functional village, which was <laughs> the individual units of which might be separated by half a day's horse ride, but there was a strong sense of community there. Okay. Yes. And it just seems to me that when those objective conditions that were regulatory and constraining and in some ways salutogenic, they were promotive of health, when those objective conditions have faded away, I just think more and more that we need to replace them with a moral advocacy, a moral stance, a moral leaning in that shames, frankly, cruelty on the internet, that speaks against bullies, that, you know, bands betas together against the alphas who are authoritarian and exploitive and so forth. It, it's a tricky one, though, right? Because it's so incentivized. The, the, the uncivil, behavior, uncivil behavior on the internet gets more eyes on it. The internet provider wants more eyes on it. And then it's paid out. So to, how do we de-incentivize that? Because at the end, then it also comes down to what is the, what's the money shot yeah. here? And that, that's where we struggle because I think that tribes keep each other in check. Because I have to say, I'm, I'm the child of immigrant parents. And when I asked my mother, she grew up in India, it was. It was very much a large, large network of extended family. And they kept each other's behavior in yeah, check. exactly. Because you really were answerable to the tribe. And she said, it's quite remarkable after everyone immigrated, the quality of familial bonds really deteriorated quite rapidly because there were no more checks in the system. Everyone was scattered all over the planet. So I agree. But how, that, that's, that, and that's what I struggle with. And that's why I wrote this book, because I actually do believe we can disincentivize it on an individual level. I'm not going to participate in that discourse. I'm going to step away at times. I'm going to correct it by being a teacher. I mean, every one of us can do this. I, I, call, I use the paradigm of tending to your own garden. Instead of screaming at someone else, till your little patch of ground and plant it and tend to it. If enough of us do do this, these patches of garden are going to connect into something quite meaningful. But right now we concern ourselves too much with the, with the guy on the other side of the gate. Do you and work on compassion there, start there, and then start building the circles out. A lot of people aren't even getting this right at home. Yeah, it's very poignant because if you think about these modern communication technologies, including things like social media, these platforms of various kinds, the channels are open. And you're familiar with Martin Buber's model of relationships, I, thou, Mm -hmm. I, it, Mm -hmm. it, it, and so forth. And if you think about it, the channel is open that and it would allow a lot of thouing of others and yet what has become so prevalent mm. is so much itting of others. Yes. And that is just, I completely yeah, agree. really curious why it turned out that way and what we can do about it. I, again, I, I think that once we, we very quickly eroded the structure of a tribal agrarian culture. In fact, you were fortunate to even have been close to that right into your childhood with your father, right? But that, I'm not saying that that's righter. What I'm saying is that when we quickly scrambled the social structures, our brains need a second to catch up. We're struggling with that even with how we communicate. And so I think evolutionarily, it has been, again, we were wired to live together, to be in groups. The nuclear family is a bit of a farce. It really was meant to be a group of us you know, with each other. And so I, I do think that the, at this point, it's, we, we have to give it a minute, but now that it's here, we're not putting it away. To me, what's happening is we're trying to do so much of the schooling in this to adults. We have got to rethink how we educate children. This is the world they're coming into. If anybody wants to put a stop to this epidemic of incivility, it's got to start young. Yeah, it just seems like people need to have the moral confidence because the conditions, the objective yes. conditions are not going to take care of us any longer. They, we, need, we need to have the moral confidence to lean into vowing others and frankly, shaming, hitting 
without tipping into the pitfalls that that could lead to. And that idea of, of the, the moral confidence to lead into the vowing, which is so beautifully put, is that requires an inner confidence in ourselves. Now we're back to the self-compassion. I have to value me enough to have that moral confidence to, to embrace the thouness of it all. And so the fact is, though, because we're so reliant on self-esteem instead of self-compassion, that idea of social comparison, I'm not doing enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not big enough, I am not enough is the mantra of too many people. And when you feel like you're not enough, that's when you're at risk of entering into unhealthy relationships and of itting instead of vowing. Because then you view others as an enemy, as a threat, instead of as a community, as a brother, as a sister. That's the key here. So that to me then means that sense of security building, not esteem building, but that good enoughness that a lot of people don't even get in their family of origin. That might be the best repellent we have to these current conditions. I think that's a beautiful point, doctor, and it's a great place. I mean, I wish we could keep on chugging on this forever, but we have one or two other things we would like to ask you real quickly before we kind of move to a close here. But no, I think that this this whole discussion is really very poignant and uh, very sweet. And we've wandered into very much what I think is kind of a topic of the time in these terms of these big yeah. picture structures around how do we construct culture? Because I don't think that there's any real argument at this point, at least among you know people who are pretty educated in this kind of content, that culture is constructed. It's absolutely a, a construct. So the question then becomes, what kind of a culture do we want to build? And that's a lot what you guys are reflecting on right now. So uh, we'd like to wrap the episode with one final question. It's a little bit personal in nature, but if you're comfortable with it, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a child, as a young adult, as a young person kind of trying to grow up in the world and say something to that person, what would you want to say? What would you want to leave them with? Trust yourself, take some chances and everything's going to be okay. And I wish I had done that. I wish I had been somebody who wasn't so afraid of pleasing everyone else because I actually always knew what was the right path for me. I ended up exactly on it. Well, 45 years later, <laughs> I thought it would. And so I wish I had trusted that all along. And it was all okay, despite taking a massive risk. Somehow you get up each day, sun rises in the east and things work them, their way out even on the worst day. So I wish I had known that when I was younger. And it's something I try to impart to my own daughters. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that, doctor. That's a really wonderful reflection. And thank you for all of the great content that you've shared during this episode. It's really honestly been such, you know, such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's really been a really pleasure. I really, I mean, it's very evocative. It, it, changed, it shifts some of my thinking. I love some of the reflection on empathy and how we think about someone's impoverished, empathic inner world and the origins of that, because that really, it makes all of us more compassionate to others who may not be able to bring it to reflect on Instead of asking them what's wrong with them, ask them what happened to them. It's a better conversation. Doctor, again, just thank you so much for taking the time here. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ramani Dervasala. The conversation generally focused on managing our relationship with people with narcissistic tendencies and how we can avoid falling into some of those pitfalls ourselves. Dr. Ramani stressed the importance of having clear boundaries and reasonable expectations throughout the conversation, as these are the first lines of psycho-emotional defense against someone with narcissistic tendencies. We also talked about how we can sometimes improve our relationship with people with those tendencies by giving empathy and compassion, but without falling into negative cycles around giving and giving without receiving anything back. In the second half of the episode, we spent some time talking about the cultural context of narcissism. 
including some of the ways that our current technological and social structures can actually feed into narcissistic tendencies. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we really would appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and leave a rating and maybe even a positive review. It's one of the best ways to highlight the podcast in algorithms like iTunes, and we really do appreciate it. I'd also like to let you know about Dr. Hansen's new online program, Neurodharma. If you would like to learn more about the program, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. And if you end up purchasing it, you can enter the code BEINGWELL at checkout for 10% off the purchase price. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.